Let's go to uh, Jude, or you could just listen. If you're feasting, that's fine. You can just uh, listen in on the Word of God. I'll be reading from Jude in the, in the Scriptures. One of the last books in the Bible. We have to study Jude on a Sunday. It's a good book. It's an interesting book. Jude. And there is no chapter because it's only one chapter. So I'm just going to read the first few verses here. Jude. The Word of God reads, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, Though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. Let's pray. Father, this morning, our great comfort is that you, the only God, the God revealed to us in the Bible, that you are on the throne of the universe, you are at the control board of the universe and you're not breaking a sweat. You're not worried. Your to-do list doesn't stress you out. All the tasks before you don't present the least threat or worry because your competence is off the charts. Your goodness is infinite. Your sovereignty is all yours. All things are under control. Your sovereignty, as the psalmist says, rules over all. Lord, we struggle. We even struggle to get up, even when it's light out at times, Father. But you are good and in control. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Father, I thank you for my brothers here this morning. Thank you for this food. Uh, thank you for their sacrifice to get up, to get here. I pray you would encourage all of us that we would be surprisingly encouraged through our time of fellowship and study of your word. And Father, I pray we would obey Jude's words here to contend earnestly for the faith, Father, and to avoid that blasphemous apostasy that he addresses of abusing the grace of God. Father, may it never be that we would abuse your grace. And so strengthen us this morning through your word and through this meal together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, gentlemen, uh, we have to look briefly at the uh, notes from last week. Um, just on uh, the issue of pride. If you need those notes, there's a couple, there's a couple extra. Anyone need the notes from last week? Aaron, did you pass that? What's that? Two? How many do you need? Okay, here. Sam, would you pass that back to Aaron? Thank you. All right. We're on the home stretch here, gentlemen. We will continue to meet through May. And uh, May is the grace month, isn't it, for Entrust? Because it's light out. It's, it's like noon at 5 a.m. So it's easy to get up when it's light out. The birds are chirping at 4. So, uh, but let's, uh, let's, by God's grace, let's finish strong. Uh, by the grace of God, as uh, you guys are unspeakably busy and life is a battle, but let's uh, try to finish strong. So we're going to look briefly here. Pride in the man of, in community. Um, we looked at uh, the previous two issues. And when we think about pride, it's uh, one of those issues where perhaps it makes, if, it, if you're like me, it makes you sigh a little bit. Uh, because pride is ever-present with the man, unless he's Jesus. Even Jesus had to fight it, though, being tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. Uh, you will always have to fight your pride. And pride is it's, it's what fuels every sin. And the thing about pride that is most wretched and wicked is it deceives you to its presence and its inner workings. Pride always wants to mask itself to hide, either to hide where you don't know it's there or calling itself good, calling uh, maybe a zeal, uh, a zeal uh, anger, zeal for the faith. Well, my anger, this is just zeal for the faith. Or my slothfulness, my laziness, as well I'm resting in God's grace. Uh, or a lack of love is... I'm just, a, I'm just zealous for the truth. Or a, a lack of diligence in the faith of, well, I'm, I just have a peace. And so pride likes to costume itself. And as Isaiah warns us in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it calls evil good and good evil. And so it's, I think it's safe to say, as it's been said by greater and far godlier men than myself, that much of maturity and growing in masculinity is learning to fight ourselves and to battle the pride and crucify the pride within us. And, and we have to be careful about thinking, well, I'm moving past this. I, I know that. Uh, I'm, I'm moving to other things. You don't move past that. Old men fall. Uh, men who have been walking with the Lord for decades uh, find themselves in the, in the pit of pride at times. So we have to be extra diligent on this one and watchful. We looked last week at pride in a man's thinking. Fighting in the thoughts. If you fight your pride in your thoughts, you've really, you've really dealt pride a, a serious death blow. We looked at number two, and you can uh, review the notes there. I would encourage you to. Pride in a man's teachability. 
a, a teachable thing. This is one that's perhaps at time for not all, not all of us, but a lot of us being teachable, being receptive to reproof and correction uh, for various reasons. This doesn't come natural to a lot of guys. We got this. No, honey, I'm not lost. I don't need directions. I, I know how to do this on my own. Don't tell me. I'm going to figure this out. Who are you to tell me? But we looked at about 20 verses last week that tell us that part of growing up and being a man is being able to take a spiritual punch, to get roughed up spiritually and be okay and not come unraveled uh, like, like, like a four-year-old kid who, who got his G.I. Joe guy taken from him in the dirt, that we are teachable. This is part of masculinity. And then these two combine for, for where we left off last week, brothers, pride and the local church community. Tyler, you want to hand that back to Brother Carlos if he doesn't have one already? Pride and the local church community. And this one is last on purpose. It's, it's kind of a combination between the two, between the two previous ones. How so? Pastor Matt, what do you think? How is pride in the local church community kind of a combination of the previous two, pride in thinking and pride in teachability? Exactly. It's kind of the laboratory, right? It's a laboratory of, of growing and to, to, to deal with our pride and our thinking and pride in teachability. And I think God has designed it that way on purpose. Ian, thanks for serving us, brother. Yeah, it's the laboratory. So as we think about this, we have pride. Well, let's do it this way. So pride, which is the Puritans called the sin of sin, the sinfulness of sin, it kind of feeds, it works itself into our thinking and being teachable. And then these combined in a local New Testament church, which is really the laboratory uh, of, of applying this, of application. Sorry about my penmanship there. So the, ch the local church is where these work themselves out and where they, they really are, are put to the test and addressed and confronted if, if, it's, if you know, it's a Bible, a Bible teaching church. Because the Bible, the Bible is an interesting thing. There's no book like it, obviously. But it's every single verse in the Bible, and this cannot be said about other literature, every single verse in the Bible is anti-pride in its nature. Have you thought about that? You've probably noticed it. Noticed it. Every single verse, the fabric of the Bible, it's, it's going after to kill human uh, self-worship. There's nothing, read properly, of course. There's nothing in the Scripture that is fluffing, flattering, or promoting self-actualization, self-boasting. 
uh, individualism, um, the, the praise of man, nothing about it. Isn't that interesting? That's hard to write a book like that. If you're a human, you can't write a book like that. If you're a human, you can be superintended by God to write a book like that, as the 40-ish human writers were. And so that's why this book is essential to deal with this and the organization and the place where that book is to work itself out is here. In the life, why do you have so much Bible in the church? Because, because of this and this and this and this. Right? And, that's, and God likes it that way because God doesn't like pride. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. There's no other verse like that either. God is opposed. He's taking aim at it. So this is why lots of Bible is good. And this is why the Bible cuts when it's properly taught, properly understood. It's a discerner. It shows you where you're at. Uh, a place where there's lots of Bible taught, Lots of Bible applied, lots of Bible discussed, but someone who professes Christ says, I don't like that. There, there's, a, there's a deep issue here. There's something that they do like, and it's this, self-worship. Following me? Which is why it's important to have lots of this and this, and may God have mercy on us and me. Okay, so... Brothers, you could add to this, a lot of this is just kind of basic common sense, but uh, pride in the local church community. How does this work out? Biblical support, Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. So this is the man who says, nah, I'm going to do it another way. You're not going to tell me. I I'm going to be, I'm going to be like the you know, the lone, the lone ungulate who goes over here. And, and I, I'm going to do things my way. Well, it's the lone ungulate that gets picked off by the wolves. Okay? This is called, so, isolation equals self-deception. Always. Self-deception. You've gotten trapped and deceived over in this and this to think that you can do life divorced from this, right? Isolation. The church is called the body of Christ, uh, like, the, you know, like the, the, the leg that thinks I can do life divorced from the body. I'm going to be a leg on my own. I don't need anyone else. Well, I don't know about you, but when I come across a lone leg in the forest, it's not a good sight. It means someone's dead right? My daughters and I were uh, uh, endeavored on a humble expedition to uh, look for some shed after they had been thoroughly picked over and hidden. We found where people were hiding them. That was discouraging, not surprising. And we found body parts of ungulates in the forest, lone body parts. What we did not discern, and even it was remarkable, even my, my nine-year-old daughter did not discern, is that the ungulate to whom that previously belonged was doing fine, was healthy, was strong because an isolated body part, this is, it's dead. 
Is it not, gentlemen? Self-deception. Furthermore, the other thing that tells us that promotes in your notes there, number three, is the 41 and others. I mean, if there are, if there are only like one or two one another commands in Scripture, all right, this, this approach, still deceived, but not as big a deal. But with 41 and others, 40, whoa. There are actually about 66 one another, like, like 66 times you see one another in the New Testament, but there are about 40 different ones. And that Greek word one another, it means another of the same kind, right? What same kind? God's children, okay? All right, let's make some observations. Chris Mueller, in the excellent book that uh, you brothers read, Let the Men Be Men, says this, quote, you must be interconnected in a local church before you can grow to be God's man. That's a helpful quote. That just gets right down to business, doesn't it? Before, it's a prerequisite. In other words, but before we can endeavor into masculinity as God defines it, we need to be connected. He needs to be immersed in the ministry and community of a healthy local church made up of born-again believers under a plurality of biblical elders, end quote. That's, that's, and we could just stop there, and that would be helpful if we, if we could just all do that, right? He goes on to say, quote, a truly masculine man will require more than having Christian friends your own age to hang out with. You will need to develop friendships with older and younger believers in the context of a church family, all of whom are committed to growing in Christ-likeness and eager to talk about it. Um, enough said. Now, there are times when uh, less involvement in the body is appropriate, you know, a severe trial, illness, whatever it might be. Uh, but the New Testament never encourages that as a pattern, ever. Uh, D.A. Carson said in the first century, if, uh, if, if, if an apostle were to encounter a, a man who professed Christ and wasn't, didn't belong to a particular local church, belong meaningfully, not just on paper, but in presence, that the apostle would evangelize that person. Why, why would D.A. Carson say that? One of the most preeminent New Testament scholars of our time. seems like a interesting, a, a, a cheeky comment. Why would he say that? Yeah, yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly, Todd. Thank you. So the man who seeks to separate himself from Christ's body is not fulfilling God's purposes of masculinity, notwithstanding how much culture has propagated opposing views. Uh, he's, who, he, the man who seeks to separate himself from people, kind of a lone ranger, loner attitude, is not fulfilling uh, at all. Um, he has, a, he has a, a high susceptibility to esteem himself as usually being right. When, when you start separating yourself from the spirit-indwelt community, right, and you have spiritual mirrors on all sides, ones who you don't like and you're not really like them very much. When you, start to, when, when, when you start getting rid of those mirrors, you start to think you look pretty good, right? The guy who has dirt on his face and his hair is all shoved to one side, like, you know, the, the ultra mega calic or whatever it is, 
and his shirt's on backwards, when he, when he starts to remove himself from places of mirrors, pride, even if he's been walking with God for a hundred years, because pride is in all of us, unless we're just, pride, pride will begin to convince him, oh, I'm pretty great. I, I look fine. I'm doing well. I don't need those mirrors because, well, by golly, I think, I, I think I'm great. And I'm hanging out with me, myself, and I. And so we think we're great. And we've convinced ourselves thereof. What, what, a, what a coincidence. When we hang out with ourselves a lot, we can convince ourselves that we're doing pretty well. Funny coincidence, isn't it? But the spiritual mirrors and the testing and the cutting of the Word of God will tell us different, which is why it's kind of uncomfortable. A village isolated and cut off from the rest of the world is harmfully confined to its limited understanding and views. We saw this in uh, medieval times, and our resident historian, Brother Ian, could uh, school me on this and has forgotten more than I've ever learned about these issues. But in medieval times, historians tell us in the Roman Empire, the, quote, Holy Roman Empire, that villages would be cut off like this. And sometimes you wouldn't even know the dialect in the next village like 10 miles away. And you would never, there were no, the roads would have just fallen to kaput. And you thought that outside the fences were hobgoblins and ghouls and werewolves. And you, you had your local Latin speaking priest who you didn't know Latin. You'd go sit there as you were dying in the fields, running a hula ho your whole life and, and collapsing of some death when you were 32, you were ancient, 33 if you were really old. And they didn't know about other technologies and other theology and methods of doing things because they were isolated. That's what the man who isolates himself becomes like. One of these goofy medieval villages that thinks that, well, this is how it is when you're way behind. It's the inevitable consequence. When pride combines with isolationism, you get deception and you stun your growth, right? Pride, which is like inside the flesh, okay? It's a subset of the flesh. It's the fabric of the flesh plus isolation equals great self-deception and stunting your growth. Like, but this is how the, the, the modern world with technology worked. You know, someone would make an advancement in some kind of technology, maybe like metallurgy or something like that. And the next village would be behind or the next tribe or nation. And they'd interact and like, oh, wow, we thought we were pretty smart. We were dumb in that. We need to learn how to do that particular technological advancement in metallurgy. But when you isolate yourself, you stunt your growth and you're deceived thinking that you're advanced. The flesh which resides in all people until death glorification is naturally self-favoring, self-praising, self-benefiting, self-congratulating. And so the flesh tends to favor two things, of course. Number one in your notes there under Roman numeral, little Roman numeral eight, self-isolation. It knows that other, in, other spiritual individuals can pose a threat to its self-protecting, self-praising thoughts. 
Just like a tyrannical regime will exterminate people and ideologies which pose a challenge. This is like what communism does. Even forms of socialism. They will, this is why, and those particular approaches to rule will shut down and do it like censorship and shut people off and send people to the gulags because they're a threat to their, their, their pride. Christianity being the extreme of all threats because it so promotes maturation and the utter crucif- crucifixion of pride. This is why regimes have wanted to shut it down. Okay, we want to isolate ourselves. North Korea being, quote, a hermit kingdom, end quote, and others like it. Christianity is catastrophic because it kills self-worship, and these kingdoms are fundamentally about that. So that's not only true on a corporate governmental level, but on a personal level as well. Okay? That's, why, that's why a biblical local church is like they're usually hated. This is why in Italy, as we talked about on Sunday, a big church is 60 people because that country is full of self-worship like all people are born with, right? It's, this is why also, if you'd allow me to go on a little tangent, brothers, the seeker-friendly movement, right, or, you know, or uh, in previous decades was called the church growth movement, and that's a deceptive name because we want to be friendly to people who are seeking. We want churches to grow, right? But the, the, these are... Uh, and Dr. MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel, probably is, some say it's his best book. He talks about, in these movements, the fundamental fabric of these movements is to cater to the flesh, not the spirit. To go light on the Bible, the Bible is so anti-pride, so basing of man, which ironically is so loving to man. But it, 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 in these movements, you know, we don't want to offend the unbeliever, we want the unbeliever to feel good about themselves. Remember, an unbeliever is someone who, by nature and by will, is irresistibly enslaved to only self-worship. That's all they can do. Even if they give a trillion dollars to charity, it's for self-worship. And the Bible utterly just slays all that. So these movements said, uh, which were very popular in previous decades and are now, don't offend anybody, don't, you know, don't have a lot of this, ease people into it, bait and switch kind of thing. It's no coincidence then that these quote-unquote churches get filled, right? And they have eight-figure budgets. Why is that? Yeah. (laughs) They cater to what is flourishing in most people. Jesus says the way is narrow the gate the gate is small there are a few who find it did he not say that matthew chapter 7 so we have a catastrophic phenomenon in our quote modern day where we've gone downhill where this place gets deceptively just enough of this to give the religious fix in man but not enough of this properly and thoroughly quantitatively administered to do this and this, such that actual humanness begins to flourish again, which can only happen through the rebirth, brothers. Restoring the image of God and man. 
And so you have this detrimental thing where people can do functional isolationism. Ha ha, but I'm not isolating myself because I got a lot of people around me. Isn't that convenient? And that is bad, bad stuff. I promise you, our Lord Jesus doesn't like that. You have this happening here. So no longer is the human impulse of desire for community, when they are physically isolated, communally isolated, no longer is that happening because wolves and sheep's clothing, false teachers have found out, well, we can do both, right? That's clever, isn't it? That's catchy. It's also lucrative. And it's condemned as well. May God help us. So the flesh favors two things. Either, I don't care, I'm going to be isolated. It's interesting. I think it was Al Mohler or someone was talking the other day about secular scientists have come to the conclusion that one of our epidemics upon us in our nation is isolationism. Why'd that happen? Oh, I don't know, in the last three years especially. Uh, so the flesh favors that, or the flesh favors what we just talked about, number two, community with self-flattering individuals. The flesh favors that. If, if this person, the isolationist, does community, under number two there, the flesh will gather people around itself in a very calculated way. It will be okay with individuals who do not challenge its presence and its manifestation. Thus, the flesh will deceive itself into concluding things about individuals who flatter it and do not hold, account, hold it accountable, like, oh, these people are my friends. They're really loving. They understand what it's like to love somebody. People who are enslaved and unwilling to set sail out of the satanic endeavors of self-worship, they will conclude when not a lot of this, not a lot of Bible is happening, they will conclude about people who flatter them love. In reality, they've accumulated individuals around them who do not fully love them in a biblical way, but who instead join them in flattering them in part so that they, they will be flattered in return and so that they will not be held accountable. And these types of fleshly relationships, even in the name of Christianity, there is an unspoken community ethic. What is that ethic? What is that unspoken community ethic? One example, you do not pose any challenges to me. You do not hold me accountable, and I won't hold you accountable either, okay? We got a deal here, and everyone's cool. We're good. So we can do this, isolation and self-deception in community, because we got this agreement. You're not going to hold me accountable, and I won't you either, all right? What a loving community I found here. What a hateful community you found, and a deceiving one. Notwithstanding the prominence of this type of, quote, community within professing Christian churches and relationship, it is in reality a form of mutual self-worship, fleshly protection, and fleshly greenhousing where sanctification and, at times, salvation is severely hindered. First church of soil two and three. First church of soil two and three. Matthew chapter 13 verse 21 and 22. 
Making sense? Comments about that? Thoughts? Cries of shock or outrage? I bet it is. Yeah, if, if you guys maybe on the live stream didn't hear that, Pastor Matt, who Pastor Matt gets a, a barrage of counseling requests from churches all over the, the region. And as he's establishing involvement with them and giving them hope from scripture, and he begins to see the root of their issue is some sin. And he begins to, in obedience to Christ and love for them, apply the scriptures to crucify self-worship and, and, and begin to deal with pride that infests and infects our thinking and teachability as we're commanded in the local church, many of these people scram, they bolt, they exit stage left because they're fundamentally ruled by the flesh and they think something is wrong with that because they have been in churches where there is functional but not physical isolationism where, where, where the flesh is just flattered and propagated because scripture is never applied personally. And thereby, they, they kill themselves, spiritually speaking, because they're never crucifying the thing that is causing their problem. It's, it's within them. It's pride. It's a high view of self. Right? So whether I'm failing to love my wife properly, whether I'm enslaved in uh, some, some sexual sin or pornography, or whether I'm a, a hateful person who can't uh, listen to my to my wife's input into my life or whatever. It comes from pride. It comes from self worship. I'll live how I want. I'll live according to my feelings. I'll do it my way. And the 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 laboratory in which that begins to be disintegrated is the lo local church. It's never and even even in a local church we still struggle with it. It's still hard. How much more without it? And these places that are functional isolationist churches, First Church of Soil 2 and 3. Okay. What, what, what is meant by First Church of Soil 2 and 3? Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, what's, what happens in Soil 2 and 3 in the parable of the soils, Matthew chapter 13? Exactly. Yeah, and it pictures... Two individuals. It's interesting that Jesus does two of them. I've, I've kind of struggled with that. I, I think I know why he's doing that. It seems like one would accomplish the purpose because both things happen, but I think he's wanting to show the, the, how pervasive it is and how deceptive it is. In other words, he says th there'll be people where the seed will fall in the soil. The word of God falls into their life and they immediately spring up with, oh, this is great. This is, it's provided meaning. It's provided um, you know, a savior and, and direction for my life, and they seem to spring up quickly. But when trial comes, temptation, pressure from others, the pressure comes in to crucify your pride, to deal with the inner heart idols, they fall away. They fall away because, as in the parable, 
the, the, the soil was shallow. It was choked away by thorns or it was planted in a rocky soil where it could never grow. But the problem is, when you have First Church of Flattery that propagates that, soil two and three, where the scriptures envision this being a thing where it's so obvious and it's promoted corporately in the local church that you're not saved and we love you enough to show you and to tell you that. Now you have these harbors of soil two and three where like the entire ministry philosophy caters around that. And so in, instead of them seeing they've fallen away, they see deceptively I'm flourishing. And the only way that can happen is if this isn't happening. Instead of anti-pride, pro-pride. Instead of kill human self-worship, we're propagating self-worship with just enough Bible to tickle the religious lusts and scratch the superficial spiritual itch. Beware, gentlemen. This is the day we live in. And one of the only things from a human perspective that solves this, besides just teaching and preaching in the Spirit of God, is what? When what starts to happen in a, in a culture at large? What will just destroy, like, seeker-friendly, church growth movement? Persecution. Uh, persecution. You know, I, I, I talked to, uh, when I was in Ukraine years ago, I talked to an individual who had lived in the USSR as a Christian prior to Perestroika, prior to 1991, and I asked him that. I said, was there such thing as like you could believe in Jesus as Savior but not surrender to him as Lord? Which is to say, was there such thing as this, like the seeker-friendly movement, you're awesome, Bible light? He said, what, are you kidding me? He said, what are you, stupid? I mean, that, why, why would that exist? Why, why would anyone just do church light when you get sent to the gulag? You get shipped to Siberia to dig holes in the ice and fill them back up for your whole life and die with a shovel in your hand or something. That, that wouldn't exist. And that, that's kind of a sobering thing. I don't, I don't want persecution. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, but... Nevertheless, it is what it is, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you see in these conversions, excuse me, in these churches, as, chill was, as Phil was pointing out, sorry, I can't talk. You are chill, Phil. Um, that a doctrine of conversion begins to be backed away from a little bit. The importance of conversion, the importance of sanctification, the emphasis of expository preaching, and clarity with doctrine, clarity on things like hell, heaven, a carefulness with who gets into leadership, who doesn't, who's baptized, who isn't, that, that gets backed away from. It has to be backed away from. Because the only reason you're doing those things is because you're against self-worship and for the exaltation of God and his word. And so you have to, you have to broaden the fences 
to, to, to allow flattery to exist, right? Flattery can't exist when you start to be clear biblically about, again, about conversion, uh, who is saved and who isn't, the importance of sanctification, um, the importance of baptism, the importance of also being meaningfully involved, because that's anti-flesh, um, who, who is in leadership and who isn't, et cetera, et cetera. Because all these things are against the flesh, against the flesh, against the pride, against pride, and against self-worship. All those things are fundamentally against it when you bring clarity to them from Scripture, because the Bible itself is against those things, right? And these are some of the foremost doctrines therein. And we could add to that, I know it's somewhat of a hobby horse of mine. I like it being my hobby horse. It's a horse that I like. It's my hobby. Um, the doctrines of sovereign grace, right? Election, effectual call, particular redemption or limited atonement, perseverance of the saints, total depravity, these kind of things. Okay? All of which Paul and Moses and Obadiah and Peter believed in. Okay. Other comments? So the more, the more we isolate ourselves, the more we get caught up on our own head. The flesh is inclined to believe our own thoughts. That's, that's a bad one. And to ascribe righteousness to our own musings. Be real careful of that. The flesh, you know, when you're alone a lot, you, you just, you'll muse a lot. And, and look, and I'm not saying there's something wrong with being alone, but unnecessarily so when you do this, okay? Some of us in our jobs and life, whatever, it's just the way it is. God is sovereign. But we begin to believe our own musings and ascribe righteousness to them. Oh, be very careful. And then lo, lo and behold, when they get tested, we don't like it. Few things are worse than a man, a lone ranger, who isolates himself from much-needed spiritual sparring, correction, sharpening, broadening, which Christ hardwires into a New Testament local church, all which attacks and confronts the fleshliness of isolationism. Uh, a guy who's taking martial arts and never practices martial arts with other people thinks he's good at it until he gets his jaw shoved onto the sweaty mat the first time. Oh, I'm not good at it right? That's, that's the church is to be like that in part. A guy who plays football by himself all day thinks he's good at football until he goes and he actually has a defense and he gets T-boned by a free safety running a 4-2, you know? Community is so important to all of us. I need it. I'm scared of myself, man. I struggle like any guy. I struggle to, to care for my wife like she needs to be cared for with all the fleshiness, grumbling, temptations. I mean, I, I can't imagine myself if I just checked out. It, it'd be bad. And I didn't have men around me. Uh, my small group I meet with every Thursday night. Six, seven guys. Dude, I know that they, they care about doctrine. They're men of conviction. And they will lasso me by the 
ankle and hogtie me spiritually if I need it. A man who isolates himself from the New Testament local church may feel good about himself, but like a man sitting under a bridge alone, sniffing toluene, he is in his isolation, numbing and damaging himself. When a man calculates and isolates himself, he'll often seem right in his and righteous in his own eyes. Self-isolation conditions a man, often imperceptibly, to operate with a dangerous man-centered epistemology. We talked a little bit about that last week. A man-centered epistemology. That's, that's what happens here. This guy who's isolated, he has a man-centered, what does that mean, a man-centered, if you've been with us, epistemology? That's inherent to pride. Exactly. Right? So epistemology is like the study of the hierarchy of, of knowledge, how we know what we know. Right? And instead of Christ and Scripture ruling and his own thoughts being subject to that, this gets reversed. This gets here. This gets put here. That's a man-centered epistemology. Though he thinks, because, you know, He's playing a sermon now and then. Uh, he read a, a verse now and then. He thinks this is reversed. But you can't have your cake and eat it too. Again, it's like a guy, it's like a guy training for martial arts who he just watches YouTube videos about it constantly. Oh, he's learning some moves and different things. But when he jumps into the ring and, and just gets clocked, it shows YouTube can only go so far, right? You cannot check out of Christ's body and still have the benefits that are exclusive to functional and meaningful involvement in Christ's body. Again, the man who isolates himself from meaningful local church involvement may counter and say, well, I listen to sermons, I read books, I watch YouTubes, I go to conferences, I speak with other believers, but his, his approach is catastrophically flawed. Again, why is it? Why is the YouTube conference? That's another thing that is good in our day, but it's also not good. That you can listen to all these sermons online and, and tune into stuff online, and it's good, but it's not good, actually. I, sometimes I wish we didn't have live stream and that John MacArthur didn't. And, and I've heard individuals say them say that as well. Like, ah, I kind of wish sometimes we didn't, we didn't have this thing. Why would they say that? Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, so like listening to sermons came out when Martin Lloyd-Jones was in ministry, and he hated it. He said, don't make my tapes, and don't make them available, my sermons to people. Why would he say that? Yeah, exactly. You can go to, it's like, well, I'll go, I went to a million marriage seminars, but, uh, you know, I never try it out. I never get into community, see people, have to love, interact with people, be confronted by people, be rubbed the wrong way. So there is a bad thing about the online church stuff and online availability of spiritual resources. There is a cost. It is never, ever, 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 ever to be a substitute for actual, present, Hebrews 10.25, physically there, physically sparring, physically loving, physically comforting others, involvement in the local church. You have, you have the direct commands from the Lord 
Direct commands about what? Feeding the sheep. Yep. So the intentional preparation, you know, examples and the preaching of the word is directed for those individual relationships. You know, and that's exactly. where God will bless it. So someone who doesn't have that benefit of having you know the shepherd knowing the sheep, there's no intentional Correct. The sheep, you know, or Exactly. Okay. Yeah, when we're when we when we do like, you know, I just listen to my favorite podcasts or whatever, but you're not meaningfully, laboriously, diligently involved and present in the local church, you never have to you never really have to live out your spirituality. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And you may think you're loving when you're not having to spend a lot of time with people, but it's love actually involves physically present with other people who aren't like you. And maybe, don't, and maybe do things and say things you don't like. That's actually what love is. Love actually requires the physical, meaningful presence of other people. You're not actively submitting to imperfect church leadership as Hebrews 13, 17 commands when you just do you know, podcast Christianity. You, you do spirituality on your own terms, Right? And if there's one thing we know that God doesn't like is spirituality on man's own terms. That, that's, the, that's half the point of the Pentateuch. God says, all these nations, they've done spirituality on their own terms. Now I'm telling you how it's to be done, how I want to be worshipped. So podcast Christianity, live stream Christianity, you don't really have to actively come under shepherding, stay accountable, um, grow, test out your learnedness in a laboratory. You, you haven't learned anything until you have to test it out in the local church. People say, well, I've learned so much about doctrine and eschatology and, and I read and theology. I don't care. Who cares? Who cares how much you know? How many fancy theological terms you can recite and definitions and you know, you know these finer points of, of superlapsarianism and the order salutis and the finer details of premillennial eschatology and the millennial sacrifices and, and these things. Like, I don't, who cares if you know that? Do you get involved with people and are you involved in the, in the body of Christ? I'd rather have a guy who knows nothing. Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. I'd rather have a guy who only knows that and wants to be eagerly, humbly, presently involved in the local church than a guy who can, can tell me everything about the, the finer details between, between the end of the tribulation, the 45 and 75 days before which the millennial kingdom starts that's detailed in the Mag, Gog-Magog invasions in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I don't care what you know, and neither do the elders. Do we love each other? Are we humble? Are we spiritual? Are we involved to encourage one another and bless each other and, and serve and to be teachable? Cares what we know. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. A, a guy who doesn't even know what Calvinism is, is that some like cartoon thing that was in the paper and it was a kid who played with his pet lion? You know, is that what Calvinism is? But he'll, 
he'll come over and, you know, he hears that your car is having trouble. He wants to help fix your car or whatever. Then a guy who, you know, he's read every RC Sproul book. He's, he, he, he knows everything about all these finer points of doctrine. I'd rather have the guy who, want, who thinks Calvin, Calvinism is a cartoon funny, but he'll come fix your car. Give me that guy. He's, more, he's far more spiritual. Far more. Letter C, tendencies of godly masculinity and community, just a few briefly. The antithesis of some of the things we've observed. He loves godly friendship that center on Scripture, Christ, and acknowledge God in all things. He surrounds himself with spiritually stable men in the church. Right? Proverbs 27, 17 is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Uh, little Roman numeral three, he understands that he needs men to serve as spiritual mirrors in his life, especially in the local church. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Well, how do we do that? Verse 13, but encourage one another every day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Uh, fourth, masculinity and community. He understands he needs godly biblical men around him to help him stay on course and finish the race. Fifth, the masculine man in community. He sees himself as being able to learn from every man in the church. I can learn from anybody. Romans 1.12, in Paul's greeting to the church, remember? Paul says, I, I want to come to Rome that I may be encouraged together while you, while among you, your faith encouraging me, my faith encouraging you. I mean, that's the apostle saying, I can learn from anybody. He's never met these people. Six, biblical masculinity invites guys into his life. He doesn't push them away. He knows he's not above needing other brothers. Seventh, he seeks to be obedient to the commands of having godly biblical unity with others as opposed to superficial unity, right? Praise, self-flattery. True unity. Unity around humility. Unity in community. Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Eighth, he also seeks out men to encourage, influence, and pass on what God and other men have passed to him. He wants to put a piece of bread or two in other people's hands. Ninth, he seeks to pray sincerely and worship heartily and biblically with other men. And tenth, he enjoys learning the things of Christ with other godly men, 2 Timothy 2. two. Just a few things you could add to it. Thoughts, comments, anything we miss? Questions? Pride comes out in conversation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very good. Uh, Proverbs 10, 19, one I need to memorize with my kids, where words are many, transgression is 
unavoidable. <laughs> oh, and the answer isn't just to not talk as much because Luke 6.45 is the appendage to Proverbs 10.19, isn't it? Luke 6.45, out the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. So the answer is to crucify pride and ask God's forgiveness for the seeds of words, which are thoughts. Thank you, Tyler. All right. Richard, would you close us in prayer? Pray for us, that me, all of us, that we would grow in these things. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Good to see you all. Good to see you guys online, too. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good one, gentlemen.